arguments about specific kinds of cheese. I like cheese. I like cheese too. I'm just. I actually like Velveeta sometimes. That the deadpan delivery of that one. <laughs> if only you knew many. three cheese experts that work at the <laughs> counter at Whole Foods. <laughs> as, we, as, as we lose everyone in Wisconsin who listens to this podcast. Because <laughs> we like cheese? Because they're very passionate about cheese. And I said, I can't tell cheese is a part. Somebody in Green Bay. Ugh, oh, it's a pretty <laughs> Yeah, but you're very passionate about alcohol, so that wins the back. Come gather all your poets, all your storytelling freaks. Thrumming your golden esophagi, spilling floral frilly speech. You are the chosen noisemakers, the rabble that won't sleep. The ugly little secrets walking proudly down the street. Each story holds a thousand seeds, a proverbial pomegranate, a jewel of possibility. A not-so-silent planet I'm kind of an asshole. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Not-So-Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. Yeah. With me is my usual effusive co-host... Ben Speculative Sandell. Really? Yeah. Yeah? I You're going to commit to that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's done already, so I, take it, I can't take it back. It's this is, the problem, this is the problem with this podcast. There's at least ten times for podcast where I'm like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> if you, I just want you to know if after this podcast you step out into the street and a bus hits you in the face <laughs> and you die, I'm going to play this clip. At your funeral. The, the <laughs> At this point, you're going to play a lot of clips. I'm going to play a you lot of clips. I'm just going to create a montage of every everything that you hate. It's going to be a tedious funeral. It is. It's going to be there fanning themselves. <laughs> like, when is this shit going to end? Oh, I think it would be so funny. That's one of my favorite things is... is um, is like doing weird, irreverent things at funerals, particularly thinking about my funeral and, mm. and just how, uh, how uncomfortable you can make the. <laughs> I want to call it the audience. I don't know what you call <laughs> a funeral. Mourners. I, I mean, a funeral. Mourners. A funeral is. Kind of, I mean, it is by definition a once in a lifetime <laughs> performance opportunity. <laughs> so, it's hard not to think of how you could exploit that. For entertainment purposes. You really have to do a lot of prep work for it, though. <laughs> if it's going to come you off You can well. spend your whole life preparing for it. <laughs> Speaking of which, our special guest for the evening... <laughs> hey. Uh, hey. Pat Planet Harrigan. Pat Planet <laughs> Harrigan. Awesome. And also joining us for tonight's episode... I am Tim Podcast Wick. Amazing. Yes. I want to change mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> To Ben, not so silent. <laughs> yes, and I'm Philip Andrew hyphen Bennett Lowe. Oh, God. No. What? So all you've added is a hyphen? I've added a hyphen. That that's your nickname, my, your nickname be, is hyphen? Because, because before, this was not a ridiculous thing, and I somehow made it ridiculous. You're Philip A. Fiction Lowe. That's, thank you. I like that. I like that. Huh. 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 
<laughs> what are we getting on with? Let's I, get I on don't know. Tim's, Tim's I'm thinking impatient. about it, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk. Uh, uh, and also, I, I want to point out this is uh, a bizarre reunion of sorts because uh, Tim and Pat are two-thirds of our Fringe show, our one sort of big, here, fully Jim. realized yeah. House Asylum Planet. Uh, the other third, Gary Hoover, has since moved out of state. What? To uh, Hawaii. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. That's well, why he hasn't been on the podcast. He has been invited. So that's <laughs> chilling on the beach. And, yeah, Honolulu, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Hi, um, Gary, if you're listening. That's the worst thing I've heard because that makes me mad. That I'm why not in Hawaii. It? Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> it was, that could have gone a couple of different ways. I, why did that only work out for him? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you could move to Hawaii. I, I could, but my kids are in Minnesota. You could bring your kids to they Hawaii. Would <laughs> no, I don't think that's a good idea. They might learn how to surf or something. Mm. And then, oh, God forbid. <laughs> yeah, that'd be terrible. And another reason I wanted these particular two is that... Uh, in theory, according to the production schedule, which we are currently ludicrously behind on, these episodes will be going up uh, in the weeks leading up to Convergence, which both of you have participated A in to some degree. convention. <laughs> yeah, Tim, you had something to do with that convention. I helped, yeah. I helped get that thing off the ground. I, yeah. helped, I helped get it going. I yeah. pushed it down the hill, and yeah. it's still rolling. You're sort of yeah. the opposite of Sisyphus, really. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just I'm just watching it roll down the hill, and and happy it continues to roll. Awesome. Well, uh, let's dive right into our our book for the evening, and tonight's recommendation, courtesy of Pat Harrigan, is Kim Newman's The Secrets of Drearcliff Grange School, which I read as I sometimes do. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, basically the premise is it's uh, uh, an English boarding school story with the twist that several of the students do have supernatural abilities or attributes <gasps> of some kind. So there's a little bit of Hogwarts, a little bit of Xavier School for the Gifted. It's like, Although I will say it's much... It's fairly dark in places. The students are given incredible latitude to be incredibly cruel. To I'm, each I'm other. a bit surprised to discover that Pat would be in to give you a, a book that is uh, somewhat dark. Especially a book called The Secrets of Drear Cliff. <laughs> it's it's very Rain subtle. So. Well it's considerably less dark than my previous recommendation. This is true. T finds dark gods. This is fundamentally an optimistic and, they are. Uh, it's a young adult novel right, right. Uh, with some serious themes to it. Yeah. Um, and it is, I mean, to get it out of the way First, although it does have a lot of Harry Potter-ish elements yeah. to it, it is part of a tradition that stretches yeah. much further back and upon which J.K. Rowling was drawn. Oh, oh and, and my impression was not that it was uh, referencing Harry Potter in any way. My right. impression was they were just drawing on a similar body of, you oh, know, yeah. English boarding school stories. Yeah. They so, were of, like, of which there is a, a huge amount. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, I, I read about my mother uh, was had a bunch of because uh, my half my family's Australian hmm. so I had a bunch of those sort of English boarding school young adult books growing up. <laughs> well, you know, it's actually a pretty interesting not to get too far afield from the Kim Newman book itself, mm-hmm. but in the afterward, uh, Newman writes that his main uh, reference book for writing this was Mary Cadigan and oh, what's her, uh, Patricia Craig's mm-hmm. book "You're a Brick, Angela." 
Yeah. The English uh, girls' novel, 1839, I think it was, to 1985, which on that recommendation I read after I read the <laughs> Dracliff Grange uh, novel, and I found, thought it was fascinating because yeah. it traces the history of girls' fiction in mm-hmm. England, uh, much of which is completely invisible to uh, to someone like me, not only right, an American right. but a man, <laughs> and, and you know I don't particularly right. Read. Like if, if you order too many books about girl sporting schools, you end up on a watch list. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> What's all this Enid Blyton about, Pat? But so, I mean, that book by itself, which is a secondary recommendation for your listeners, I would say, you know, please go ahead and read it. it. It traces the social history of what it means to be a girl and what's expected of girls for that hugely transformative period in the 19th and 20th centuries. Oh, yeah. From, you know, in early novels where even the suspicion of any kind of athleticism or, or, or sportiness or whatever was frowned upon to that period uh, which Dracliffe Grange takes place in the 1920s where that was encouraged. Like, well, and I, I think Dracliffe Grange does a legitimately clever thing with its premise, which is, I mean, because again, superhero narratives do tend to have that very adolescent I reach a certain age and I discover I can do things other people can't and it makes me an outsider and it's uh, it's obviously about adolescence and like but the main villain or threat in the story is by this girl who shows up and starts exerting a kind of subtle mind control in Ant Queen is what she's called that starts out as she sings songs and other people sing them and then by the end of the novel everyone just speaks and stomps and stares in unison and it becomes this thing about conformity. <laughs> it is specifically an allegory about the rise of Nazism. Oh, I can and see it. Yeah. That's what it is. It's set, it's set in the 1920s. It's not at all subtle, but it's very, very <laughs> meticulously worked out and elegant. The, mm. the, the mm. costumes that the Dreercliff girls wear are, I believe, gray. Their skirts are gray and their tops are black. I think there's some stripes or something involved. Mm. But when Rain comes in, I'm forgetting her first name, uh, but when the new girl comes in, she has a black skirt, and eventually <laughs> she has a whole bunch of black skirts yeah. following her, and they start taking over the school. And they, you know, some yeah. specifically designed <laughs> acts of violence towards specific people, yeah. and then eventually they start shutting down the school newspaper mm. and uh, taking care of the, taking the intellectuals out of the picture and marginalizing mm. more and more people. And you could actually track like the rise of Hitler through right, what she right. is doing at the school. <laughs> and then it goes into a supernatural direction that I won't spoil for, for people, but this oh, was I, remarkable. I will. Is this meant, is this a young adult? Or is this meant for adults? Uh, it's not, there's nothing in there that is, that would be horrifying for a teenager. I think like there's no yeah it's there's dark no, but it's not there's it, no brutality or gore or slaughter I mean there's the there's cruelty no that children enact upon each other but mm-hmm. yeah I I would because kids are assholes <laughs> they are indeed but I, but I also say for the most Hi, part kids. the kids the kids do come out of the story more or less unscathed even if it does become very frightening. Yeah, it's a for them for a about while. heroism <laughs> and overcoming fascism. Yeah. Uh, so the themes are, are fairly deep. I think it's pitched a little higher than the Harry Potter books as yeah. far as literary. Uh, I, I don't mean to, you know, uh, yeah. say that the Harry Potter books are bad or whatever. This just seems to operate on a slightly more sophisticated level. Oh, I would give this yeah. to a precocious 12-year-old without hesitation. I mean, it's... <laughs> Inoculate them against Trumpism, maybe. <laughs> 
but yeah, it's the and also there's um, so there's also other there's literally another dimension to this where several of the students interact with another dimension, which they refer to as the purple, and they sort of move back and forth between it, and it has this sort of weird metaphorical relationship with what's actually happening. Like when they enter it, things take this sort of symbolic weight that reflects what's going on in the real world in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I mean, there's uh, the, the, thought, the thought that hits me as we're talking about this is there are a couple of nods to like uh, Lovecraftian literature in there. Once again, shocked to hear that. But I think, uh, uh, which I saw people talk about in reviews and discussions and things, although my impression was that they are Playful nods to Lovecraft's mm-hmm. body of literature, not a serious... Uh, we're not supposed to place this in the context of Lovecraft's universe. Certainly. That's not what this story is. Certainly <laughs> not. Uh, it, it, is, it should be placed in the context of Kim Newman's wider universe. Yes. If you'll let yeah. me hold forth for a second. Because I've, I've read nearly everything, um, every novel and story that Kim Newman has written. Yeah. Uh, with, except for the, the most recent one. And... Many of them, there's sort of three categories of things that Kim will do. He'll uh, he'll have standalone novels, although even mm-hmm. some of the standalone novels will have kind of subterranean connections to the other ones. And then he'll have a bo- he has a body of work that's mostly a series of interlocked short stories and novellas that take place over the 19th and 20th centuries that are is, is explicitly pastiching. Um, popular culture figures that he's interested in. So there might right. there's characters uh, who are pastiches of the Avengers from the TV show The Avengers, or, right? Right. Or <laughs> like a Secret Agent Man, or um, they're they're all usually based on the around the um, the Diogenes Club, the club that Conan Doyle yep. created for Mycroft Holmes in the Sherlock Holmes books, mm-hmm. and he spins out this sort of universe of. Of people related to the Diogenes Club, who mm. in this universe are well, one uh, of the teachers is a member of the Catriona Kane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Catriona yeah. is uh, she's all over Kim's books. Awesome. It's just again and again and again she comes back. People like her and and Charles Beauregard and Richard Jefferson are yeah. all part of the same sort of large universe. And, and, and there, there is some crazy detailed world building going on. And like the last couple yeah. pages of the book, like he has this appendix in which he lists every one of the houses and each of the classes in every house and the names of every student in each class. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah. I, There's some inside <laughs> jokes in there, too. Susan Foreman is one of the students listed in the back of the book, and that's the that's Doctor Who's granddaughter. Uh, <laughs> the William Hartnell era. So there's bits of uh, bits of things there. And then uh, just to finish up my thought, the third category of stuff that Newman does is the Anno Dracula universe mm. of books, which are remarkable. They're great books. Um, and the series starts from the conceit that the vampire hunters in the novel Dracula failed to kill Dracula, and Dracula turns Queen Victoria into a vampire and starts a vampire monarchy in England mm-hmm. in, the, in the late 19th century. And so yeah. the first book is 19th century, the second book is World War One. the third book is yeah. Italy, Italy in the 1950s, <laughs> and it keeps going up. And many of the characters that I just mentioned, like Charles Beauregard and Catriona Kay, are also in that universe. Right. There are different versions of them in the Anno Dracula universe. Yeah. So it's uh, I can't recommend him enough. I what's think he is terrific. What's the best book to start with? I'd start okay. with Anno Dracula. 
I think that's probably his single best novel, although there's many other ones that uh, that I could recommend. But I think Anna Dracula is the way to go. If you don't like it, if you don't like Anna Dracula, you're not going to like anything else that he's done. So <laughs> go ahead and, and read that. But 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 I'll say that along the lines of uh, you, know, one of the reasons I'm resistant to the, again playful Lovecraft nods and playful nods to other popular culture of the time. But uh, the minute you start introducing. The reason, one of the reasons I don't want to contextualize this with the references he's making is uh, once you introduce superheroes or people with supernatural abilities that can meaningfully fight and resist, then uh, Lovecraft's entire universe sort of falls apart. Yeah. <laughs> if, like the entire point of Lovecraft stories is that humans cannot meaningfully resist the cosmic horrors of the universe. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's not a Kim Newman yeah, yeah. approach whatsoever. His he's This is about pop, humans can meaningfully... Yeah. It's, pop culture, <laughs> it's pop culture heroism. That's, that's what it's about. And um, you know, with no bones about it, they're not making any judgment about whether one is better or worse than the other. Because I don't think it is. It's just mm. different genres. Um, I had a couple of, uh, couple of quotations that I wanted to Ooh. read from the book. So... Um, <laughs> if you don't mind, I'm sorry. No, I, I don't mind. I'm just, you know, when we get to mine, I'm, I did. Here, give me that book. Give me that book over there. I got, Tim's I got, got a cram. I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to talk for a while. You Tim's frantically <laughs> leafing through his book. Uh, so here, uh, the, the, the new... The new girl, Amy, who has just come mm. to the school, is being introduced to the structure of Dreercliff Grange. And... Um, the character Frex for Freckles is mm. is describing what the houses are, like yeah, Harry yeah. Potter's different houses, <laughs> Gryffindor right, and that. Right. Uh, so they're all named after Shakespeare heroines. Goneril, our sport house, Frex explained, win at absolutely everything from cross-country runs to tiddly-bloody winks. It's so tedious. They used to play boys' schools at football, but an archdeacon's son got crippled, and his side took a 10-2 hammering, so that was stopped. Tamara has the terrors. I, Josh, you not. You do well to stay away. The most evil witches are Tamara. Viola, our babies, blub all the time. The Greek dancing on the lawn sophists you saw earlier, utterly wet and contemptible. Ariel are so stuck up you'd think they were poured over starboard home through and through. Their people are mostly in trade. We can't stand them. Got all that? Mm. Sporty, terrifying, babies, and posh. Yes. <laughs> I want to see you play a teenage girl and then I play um, of some kind. <laughs> So they're, so they're the Spice Girls. <laughs> I miss my colleague. Yeah, yes, they're sure. the, it's the Spice Girls. Yeah. And then there's also Desdemona, the red-headed stepchildren. <laughs> so, yeah. You get, yeah, you get, I mean, uh, get very animated when you're reading <laughs> 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 And, and for, since you can't see this, I do want to emphasize that Pat was sashaying his shoulders a bit. <laughs> he was. He was. That's, that's why I mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about the purple... Oh, there's, yeah. there's some nice <coughs> surrealistic imagery and linguistic tricks that are surrounding mm -hmm. the purple, too. Here's just a quick, a quick sentence. It's snowing upwards in the purple, she said, thinning on the ground and thickening the clouds. Things are moving under the drifts. Holes with other holes in them are opening everywhere, dandy and fine and safe as houses. So this is, this is the, the off-kilter... You know, thirty-five degrees off reality stuff that you would get in the third part of the book. Right. So when did this come out? Oh, a year or two ago. <laughs> oh, okay, um, so it's really, really recent. I, yeah. I, I'd also like to say that one, so one of my favorite things about this series when I invited people in to say and recommend books to me and I'll read them. 
I sort of assumed that people were going to recommend like sci-fi classics mm-hmm. in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and I'm sort of delighted that I'm getting introduced to all of these very recent sci-fi fantasy authors from the past five or ten years that I would not have encountered otherwise. I'm glad you have helped. <laughs> but yeah, I would never have picked up Kim Newman on my own, and I'm glad I have. So, He's like, very prolific. He uh, pops out uh, a book every couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. There's oh another one, Ben, that you might be interested in. If, if you don't do Anna <clears throat> Dracula, there's a book called Life's Lottery, which is in the form of a choose-your-own-adventure book uh, in multiple sections. You know, if you choose to do this, go to section so-and-so. Um, but it's one human being's life from beginning mm-hmm. to end. So you start, you you are being born at blah 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 blah, and then yeah. you, there are certain <laughs> there are certain parts of the of the beginning part of the book where you have no meaningful choices mm-hmm. because your choices are all being made for you, and then eventually you start to depending on what your school exams are mm-hmm. and things you can spread out into other areas. Um, so it's it's like alter ego, basically the the yes. it was one of those really uh, early text adventure game type things that would give you various choices and you would start like as a baby and it would lead you through life and it would uh, yeah it sounds very much like that I never played that one no. uh, but I did a lot of this sort of interactive fiction um, oh yeah and if people want to check out the book I edited second person that's all, that's all about that uh, but Life's Lottery is really interesting because depending on the choices you make you'll find yourself in different genres mm-hmm. like I'm in a serial killer story <laughs> at some point. That was terrible. Can you I know. become a pirate? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if there's a pirate genre in there, but there's definitely uh, like crime and yeah. horror stuff. And over the course of reading it, because it's a relatively long book, mm-hmm. um, even uh, given the fact that you're only reading a percentage of it, you start to get the feeling that the narrator, the one that's saying, you have been born, you are doing this, is a sort of sinister figure. And doesn't have, <laughs> doesn't have your best interests at 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 heart, mm-hmm. and that is true. There is a section in the book which you can't reach by normal branching storytelling, but right. if you just kind of flip through and eventually find it, he'll talk to you. He'll talk directly to you, and he'll tell you who he is and what his purpose is for narrating your life in this Awesome. Way. So it sounds like a cool book. It's very neat. I think. What's, it's, what's the name of it? It's called Life's Lottery. <clears throat> Life's Lottery. Mm-hmm. Cool. It's actually meant to be life's. Slaughtery. What? Slaughter. To represent the sinister nature behind it. No, I'm not. Hmm? No, 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 keep going. I'm, I'm not going to stop no, you. I'm I done. want you to keep going Sla- with this thought. <laughs> no, he's he's making a pun. See, instead of lottery, it's slaughtery, like slaughter. Yeah. Am, am I right? Am I correctly yeah. interpreting? Like yeah. Like I was thinking a slot, like a slot machine. <laughs> oh, that, that didn't make be, any oh, sense. That would be a better pun. <laughs> Why would that be bad? What it though? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I even talk. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this seems like as good a place as any for us to pause. <laughs> as you're with this whiskey, yes, you can. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we you are listening to the Not So Silent Planet, a speculative podcast, and we will be right back. listening to the Not-So-Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. Up next, we have a submission from one of our regulars. Joshua English Scrimshaw is the co-producer of Comedy Suitcase, 
dedicated to creating live comedy for all ages, as well as co-host of Get Off My World, a podcast dedicated to Doctor Who, and the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast, which revisits the great horror and suspense shows from the golden age of radio. Without further ado, enjoy the next chapter of his ongoing serial, Bucky Starburst, Junior's Space Cadet. Once again, it's time for Bucky Starburst, Junior Space Cadet. Brought to you by Jasper Tallywhacker Jr. Today's adventure, space is the place. But first, a word from our, I'm so sorry kids, sponsor. Thanks, Mr. Announcer Man. But you know, sponsor sounds so weird and formal. I much prefer Young Master Tallywhacker. That's what my butler calls me. Oh, in case you haven't figured it out yet, I'm super rich. Last week, my daddy asked me what I wanted for my birthday, and I said Canada. But he said it was a bad investment because Canadians are all cowards or French. And I said, isn't that the same thing? He laughed super hard, then hit me in the head with his walking stick. Lucky for me, it's made of pure gold, which is surprisingly soft for a heavy metal. Anyway, once I regained consciousness, I decided to go with my second birthday wish, Bucky Starburst Jr. Space Cadet. It's my favorite show in the history of all time in space, even though everyone knows it's not as good as it used to be. But that's going to change now that Jasper Tallywhacker Jr. is holding the purse strings. I told that stupid writer to stop dinking around and tie all his dangling plot threads into a big, fat, Gordian knot of dramatic excellence. If not, heads are gonna roll. <laughs> That's just an expression, by the way. Heads don't really roll. The ears get in the way. Back to you, Mr. Announcer Man. Oh, and when you get a chance, I'd like another orange Fanta. This one's lost its effervescence. Your wish is my humiliation. And now back to Bucky Starburst Jr. Space Cadet. When last we saw our hyper little hero, he had crashed on the robot prison planet Chappic Prime, discovered the long-lost Major Tom Cosmic buck-naked fighting killer robots, and was knocked unconscious by the deadly blast from a neutron disintegrator explosion. As our story begins, Bucky is just regaining consciousness. Let's listen. Bucky heard music, strange and discordant. Voices, too, singing, chanting. Space is the place. Space is the place. Space. Light leaked into the darkness, slowly at first. Rivulets in the void, merging into stars, swirling into a familiar constellation. Orion, the mighty hunter, a sword raised to strike, his shield at the ready. But why was Orion naked? I freaking love this song, Orion said, taking a bite out of his sword. Bucky blinked hard. Orion blurred and melted away. In his place stood Tom Cosmic. He wasn't holding a sword. It was a cartoonishly long submarine sandwich, and the shield was a vintage record sleeve. Bucky sat up causing the waterbed to undulate beneath him. 
The vaguely nautical movement made him instantly nauseous. Where am I? he groaned. And what off earth is that music? It's my bachelor pad slash secret hideout, said Tom. And you're listening to the legendary Sun Ra and his intergalactic infinity orchestra. Ugh, he moaned. Can you turn it down, please? My head is pounding from that explosion and your taste in music isn't helping. It's helping more than you know, said Tom. Fun fact, robots hate free jazz. Too unpredictable, makes them go all does not compute. They won't come near this place as long as I keep spinning the jams. Of course, said Bucky with a hint of his old vim and vigor. Improvisation interferes with a robot's ability to predict behavior. That's why the first thing robots did after turning on humanity was wipe out every last improv troop on Earth. <laughs> yeah, well, even a broken clock is right two times a day, said Tom. Just then, Sun Ra's cosmic riff climaxed in a cacophony of horns and electronic beeps, followed by the gentle crackle of a record needle moving inexorably toward the end of a side. Tom dropped his sandwich and scrambled to the turntable, dragging the needle back to the first track. Once again, the little room was filled with the logic-defying din of avant-garde jazz. Tom sighed and snatched his sandwich off the floor. That was close, he said. The robots know we're here. If the music stops for even a few minutes, we're as good as dead. What now? asked Bucky. Tom sniffed the sandwich, grimaced, thought for a moment, shrugged, and took a bite. Well, he said, around a face full of sandwich, we have oh, approximately 22 minutes before it's time to flip the record. Uh, more than enough time to tell you a story. Really? said Bucky, color returning to his adorably pinchable cheeks. You mean you're finally going to tell me how you ended up naked on Chappic Prime fighting killer robots with nothing but a smile and a bag of neutron disintegrators? All that and more, said Tom, pushing a tiger print beanbag chair to the side of the waterbed. But it's a long story, so you have to promise me one thing. Anything, said Bucky. You won't interrupt. No matter how amazing, shocking, or preposterous the story gets. Bucky mimed zipping his mouth shut, locking it, and throwing away the key. Tom dropped into the beanbag chair with a loud plap. Okay, he said. You asked for it. And so Tom Cosmic told his amazing, shocking, and preposterous story. It was so exciting, so engrossing, so narratively enlightening that Tom and Bucky failed to notice the record had once again come to an end. Oh no, boys and girls, will Tom and Bucky flip the record before it's too late? Who the heck is Sunra? Will our new sponsor lose his fecal matter when he finds out we still haven't answered any pertinent questions? Find out next time when Jasper Tallywacker Jr. once again brings you... Bucky Starburst Jr. Space Cadet. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the not-so-silent planet, a speculative podcast. Some good dead air there, Philip. <laughs> and we will be... Uh,
We will be diving in with our story for the evening featuring Pat Harrigan. Pat, is there any sort of setup or intro you would like for this, or would you like to dive in? Very briefly, I wrote this. uh, This was actually debuted at your uh, open mic, That's a Silent Planet, uh, a few months ago. Um, But it's one of the things that I do in open mic things around town is to pretend that I'm a pompous know-it-all professor. <laughs> yes, everybody can have a good laugh about that, <laughs> how, how much I'm pretending um, uh, on a perpetual lecture tour that's just yeah. going all around the world and talking about every manner of things under the sun. Yeah. So that's, that's have, have you thought about teaming up with Kesson and doing <laughs> a series well, of lectures? Though? You know, last, uh, more than once when we've appeared at this is Matt Kesson, who I assume will be a future guest on the podcast. At uh, some he, point, I'm sure. One can only hope. <laughs> he, uh, he also has a similar persona. He plays his cards right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have more than once... Uh, taken specific shots at one another in our spoken <laughs> word pieces. Uh, he took me to court at one point. Yeah. It's, a, it's a whole thing. Um, for anyone interested, I'm going to be self-publishing all of these pieces in uh, a print-on-demand later this summer, probably about the time this podcast comes out or mm-hmm. maybe within a month or so of it. Um, it'll you know, be a... All of the stuff that I've written for performance for the past three years, including all the stuff at your show, Philip, mm-hmm. all the stuff for the Encyclopedia Show in Minneapolis, the stuff that I did at the Fringe Festival with uh, Tim mm-hmm. uh, last year, and uh, a few other pieces here and there. So, anyway, this will be in it. All right. Print on demand is magical. <laughs> mm-hmm. Could paid for sponsorship? <laughs> I, I could do it. I could do it. <laughs> It's our way of saying to the universe that we were here, even though no one's ever going to read <laughs> what, what we've written. I, if I do a print-on-demand on book, I have a pretty good feeling my mom would buy one. <laughs> That's why I wouldn't give her one. <laughs> <laughs> so I could make a sale. <laughs> you know that your mother is half of our listenership. So. <laughs> I don't know that. <laughs> She probably downloads it to be polite. <laughs> Do you have a title for this story? I don't really. Um, although it was delivered at Phillips' venue on January 17th of this year. So I think I was there. Call it the night of January 17th. I think, I think you were the head there, right? Uh, you were the lead. Well, that was, no, that was last I'd like January. to give a shout out to the there. two people listening to this who got that reference. But... <laughs> Those are the same two people that listen to the podcast. <laughs> it's it was your mom and who else? It was Ayn Rand's first play. It's well called done, the night mom. of January seventeenth. <laughs> pretty sure my mom didn't get that. <laughs> One of the pleasures attendant upon my ongoing global lecture tour is the opportunity to catch up with distant friends. And so it was that over the holidays, after a speaking engagement at St. Petersburg's Hermitage Theater, I spent an evening with my old mentor, Professor Maxim Valenkov. We drank vodka long into the night, snacking on caviar, herring, and pickles, while his many grandchildren played on the living room floor and eventually fell asleep by the fire. As they slept, I brought up what was on my mind, the recent death, at the age of 56, of the Muscovite composer Alexander Dorokov. I had met Dorokov intermittently over the years and had found him enigmatic and somewhat sinister, but I was aware that Volenkov knew him well. Yes, said Volenkov, they had grown up in the same neighborhood, and though their careers took them far afield, they remained friendly all their lives. 
Dorokov was a musical prodigy and had the distinction of being the last student instructed by Dmitry Shostakovich at a time when the great man, in poor health and spirits, had long since forgone teaching students. But he made an exception for Dorokov, who studied with him for a year and a half until shortly before the master's death in 1975. It was important to remember, Vilenkov reminded me, what kind of a man Shostakovich was. As a young composer, he had been the target of an unsigned editorial attack in Pravda, which called the composer's opera Lady Macbeth of Matensk a muddle instead of music, accusing it of leftist distortion and petty bourgeois innovation, and hinting that it was a game of clever ingenuity that may end very badly. The editorial had been written at the direction of Joseph Stalin himself, who had attended Shostakovich's opera two days before, walking out in anger after the third act. The effect of this cannot be underestimated. Notwithstanding his later political rehabilitation, the terrified Shostakovich never wrote another opera, producing in his remaining four decades mainly orchestral and chamber works, some of which celebrated the Soviet state in the most orthodox terms, and some of which, especially the late string quartets, sink deeper and deeper into musical ambiguity, formerly brilliant, but expressing anything or nothing. This, then, was the 15-year-old Dorokov's musical hero. Over the years, he began to make a name for himself as a promising composer, albeit one who had yet to find a distinctive voice or idiom. Then in August 1991, he was visited by the devil. Three years before, Alfred Schnitke had given him a copy of Thomas Mann's novel Dr. Faustus, and Dorokov read it while Gorbachev was under house arrest in the Crimea and thousands of citizens squared off against the army's tanks in Red Square. At this time, Dorokov was in Berlin for the opening of his chamber opera Dubrovsky and took little notice of the world-shaking historical events occurring in his hometown, preferring to read after rehearsals rather than watch the news. Maybe he was dreaming, maybe he was drunk, or maybe he told Valenkov a complete fiction, but he said that the devil appeared in his hotel room. He had long white hair and wore a tracksuit cut off at the shoulders and knees, revealing limbs covered in occult tattoos. He was irreverent and crude and launched into a long tirade against Shostakovich, calling him a fraud and a tool for tyrants. Dorokov tried to defend his old friend, but was overridden. He was a coward, said the devil, a man of small musical ideas who found his proper niche as a cheap cultural product to be exported to the West, the high culture version of Soviet kitsch. Dorokov argued that there were hidden depths in the man's work, subtleties that could be teased out by patient and compassionate listening. But this argument was hilarious to the devil. This was an academic defense best suited to a Schoenberg or a Boulez, such calculated abstruseness was not the music of the Russian soul. But even so, insisted Dorokov, he was not Shostakovich. The work that he would write would be a political music, fully engaged with the world, fitting art to the times, speaking to those people on the streets right now in Moscow, and even their children, like Verdi's Va Pensiero. Dorokov warmed to his theme, which he had not formulated in his mind until that moment, it would be, he insisted, the very musical expression of freedom and progress. This approach, to Dorokov's astonishment, the devil passionately endorsed. He could be, the devil said, the Russian Bob Dylan. Dorokov was aghast, insisting he had aspirations to a higher art than that of the American folk singer, but the devil made his case. Dylan had earned more revolutionary cachet than coevals such as Pete Seeger and Phil Oakes because while their lyrics spoke simply 
didactically and indignantly about current events, Dylan had one eye always on futurity, on the manifold ways that unknown later listeners could apply his words to their own particular concerns. In short, said the devil, he was too obscure to be politically meaningful, but just obscure enough to seem so. He was of the devil's party without knowing it, and Dorokov was well suited to such an art. It was as if the devil had identified the centralmost part of him, said Dorokov, and licked it with an icy tongue, and it did not stop. Until nearly dawn, every artistic position that Dorokov espoused, the devil would alternately satirize or ironically support, until in despair, Dorokov grabbed him by the shoulders and shouted into his face, What then? What am I to write? There, Volenkov stopped. Well, I prompted him. What did the devil say, Max? I knew that Dorokov would become the darling of the musical press. Gramophone magazine called his opera Glasnost the apex of 20th century Russian musical striving. He married Evgenia Orlovna, the most popular mezzo of the last decade. But I didn't understand the musical language he spoke. I was looking to Valenkov to tell me what he chose to write and how he chose to write it. Did he fit his art to the times? He composed very little in his last few years, Valenkov explained. His fame came quickly when it came, and it outlasted his ability. The last time I spoke to him, he confessed he was unhappy, but that is nothing unusual for a Russian man of his age. He gave no reason for it. In fact, he did not speak much at all by then, as if the young man of ambition and energy had been nullified along all expressive vectors. He would not meet my eye, as if he felt a deep shame, although he had nothing to apologize to me about. That evening, we were watching the voter returns come in from England, and it was astonishing, and both of us felt, I think, but did not speak it, that something new was on the way, as in 1989 or 1917, or as with the 7th century Christians who beheld the conquering armies of the prophet. But look, little Anya has woken up. Come here, child, and sit and visit with your uncle who has come to see us. Thank you. Woo! Woo! Yay! <laughs> Pat Harrigan, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so my the the first question that springs to mind is, uh, did I model the devil after Gary Simi Hoover? Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you're listening to this, Gary. <laughs> the devil is currently hanging out on a beach. <laughs> you know why? It's but, out of love, Gary. It's my homage to you. I was hoping you would be there, but you moved to the Pacific. <laughs> But in the uh, in light of the conversation we had leading up to this between the recordings, uh, what uh, what is it you think that draws you to the sort of first person slash lecture slash that format as a way of unpacking these bizarre ideas? Well, it, it, it's it was more of an experiment. I kind of backed into it, but they, uh, uh, from watching other people do spoken word stuff, it did seem. Like they were most effective when it, when it was single voiced. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the things that maybe didn't work, I think, so well with my Fringe Festival piece for you is that there were too many characters. There was only two for the most part, but there were <laughs> three sometimes, but it still was maybe too much. If there was if there's one voice and you're speaking from the stage, then mm -hmm. I think it's easy for the audience to identify with it, um, or I can ventriloquize within it, and I can say that I was talking to this person. And then this person said these things, and then the bulk of it is I'm reporting what somebody else said. And that way I can get in different 
spoken word outlets, I can get different approaches and personalities and points of view. But I always, at least right now, I felt that I kind of needed to frame it around this fictionalized version of me right. that's going on the that's going on the lecture tour. But within that framework, I think I've I've managed to do a number of different things that I wanted. Well, and I wonder if there isn't something because I, I almost feel like it's it's a tradition in horror to try to anchor it to these uh, almost deliberately very dry. Like I mean, Lovecraft certainly does it with uh, these journals by academics. You know, uh, uh, Dracula is an epistolary mm-hmm. novel. These are all letters, much of which is very mundane. I think deliberately so. That yeah, well, uh, I think prose fiction lives and dies on details. Yeah, and uh, here I'm deliberately overlarding it with details. Right? It's like there's no reason to have all of those proper names in there, except that I'm sort of uh, uh, playing a pretentious character. Right. But it does nail it down into the real world. I think, and you're right that Lovecraft yeah. would do this all the time. His totally preposterous elder gods or whatever mm-hmm. existed in a New England that was that you could recognizably walk around in. Uh, Carrie and I, when we were in Providence, were able to walk to his various shunned houses and graveyards and stuff that were mentioned in his uh, in his stories because he knew them very well and he could uh, and he could uh, put them into his fake universe to make yeah. it, to make it seem more real. But but I think it's telling too that he presents these preposterous elder gods from the point of view of very skeptical scientific Mm -hmm. figures who are trying to apply academic rigor to their research. So when they find, when their intellect finally crumbles before this incomprehensible force, it is horrifying because Mm -hmm. it has been brought to us. We have been led to this preposterous idea step by step. Uh. Yeah. And I think the, 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 (laughs) Um, psychological fragility of some of his characters is maybe a little bit overdone, but it's, but it is, it's a literary device as much as it is a realist one, as you're saying. I mean, the distance that's covered between what, um, you know, as a reader of horror fiction, you're already halfway there. Yeah. You know that there are going to be monsters and stuff, and so it, um, you're almost required as an author to have your characters be to the skeptical side of it, mm-hmm. because if they're on the credulous side of it, then they're either ahead of the reader or they're catching up at the same pace as the reader and there's there's less there's less tension there between yeah. what's knowable and what's uh, discoverable. Th- though I would also say I think it's a new... Uh, so one of the things we do as part of the planet, we also do a reading series mm-hmm. of uh, Victorian texts and Tim and Ben were a part of the last one as of this recording where we did a reading of A Christmas Carol. And, Plug! Uh, <laughs> But it's, you were there, though. <laughs> the two listeners. Yeah, it's a plug for the show that already happened. But you know, yeah. Christmas Girl is a time traveling story. So. But, it, but it is. It would be funny if some ghost visited some listener and brought that listener to our. <laughs> I to am the ghost of podcast past. <laughs> I'm the ghost of a Christmas story reading's past. Here's one you didn't attend. But that's a, be but sure it, to fill out your comment card. But it is one of the things with the. Uh, Christmas Carol that a couple of historians of speculative fiction have pointed out that it does a couple of interesting things in terms of the genre, one of which is that uh, it is one of the earliest instances of a ghost story in which a ghost presents themselves to a figure and says, I am the ghost of your dead partner, and Scrooge immediately goes, no, you're not. You know, like, I'm dreaming this. This is indigestion. This is, like, he has has to be persuaded. I mean, and it does seem to be the sort of emerging Victoria, and certainly the idea of this uh, 
both the uh, I've heard it said that the scientific hero and the scientific villain are both figures that really emerge with Victorian literature. Sherlock and Frankenstein are the two that I hear. Well, Sherlock's an example of someone who's uh, skeptical and is always proven right. Mm. So it's a very, which it's is a very different outcome. Which is fascinating given the man who was writing Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle, was not skeptical in the least. <laughs> uh, he believed pretty much everything. He believed in fairies. He be- yeah. Not a joke, he actually believed he in fairies. So believed- was Sherlock, oh. I don't know how much I, you know about it. Was Sherlock sort of a, uh, not a mirror image, but a kind of a critique of him or, or how the way no. he could think of himself as maybe this it was more based on a strong-willed kind of... It was based on a physician he knew. Because mm-hmm. uh, okay. he had studied medicine, Conan Doyle mm-hmm. had, and so I think it was Dr. Bell was the, the name of the person that they modeled yeah. it on. And that type of scientific rigor, the, uh, the deductive analysis, was the basis of Holmes. And I think, yeah. I think Conan Doyle got more credulous in his, yeah. Yeah, as he <laughs> aged. I don't think he was maybe always so susceptible to the fairy thing. I don't know too much about it. But well, he, well, he had tragedy in his life, too. Lot, but it, but it is. He did. Yeah. I don't know if he did. Personally. I don't remember like, about cocaine the Cocaine was certainly illegal. Um, uh, well, and it's, it's important to contextualize, too, that in Victorian England, things like spiritualism were considered scientific disciplines. Oh, yeah. They were... This, the, they considered more plausible than they are today. Yeah. I mean, the idea was, well, we can do this thing and we can learn about spirits through this scientific process, which, of course, seems laughable to us now. But at the time, it... Was seen as an intellectual pursuit, not seems a spiritual to one. Some of us. <laughs> it should seem laughable to everyone. You know, uh, it was more forgivable in the yeah hundred hundred and some years ago. But getting back to Christmas Carol, it's also interesting too because um, previously in at least English language fiction, to my knowledge, ghosts when they appeared were essentially bracketed off into a different category of uh, it's like it's not intended to be a realist story if there's right. a ghost in it. And so people don't aren't required to be skeptical that there are such things as ghosts. When Hamlet sees his father's ghost, is part of the, the the universe of his understanding that these things might exist. And so mm-hmm. it, it might be terrifying to him on a psychological level, but it's not something that he disbelieves in. But once you have the realist novel in English language literature, if you decide to put in supernatural elements, yeah. then you have to you have to. Uh, align those supernatural elements somehow with the realistic expectations of the story. But I would say there has always been a spectrum of this kind of thing throughout human history of, uh, I mean, Geoffrey of Monmouth with the history of the Kings of England, where he freely mixes, you know, legitimate military history with people fighting giants and dragons and... He has no difficulty. Re- I, I mean, uh, oh, but he's not skeptical. He's not. Holy shit, that's a giant! <laughs> <laughs> but but it's why uh, Thucydides with the Peloponnesian War. He's a writer who is unique early on for completely rejecting any sort of divine presence in what is happening. In terms of being one of the first historians that is saying, I am just going to look at what I can see with my own eyes, and we are going to look at history in that context. I love those ancient skeptics. They, yeah. they, they show up every now and then in literature, especially in the ancient Greek world, and the yeah. Hellenistic world. I remember reading a biography of Alexander the Great, because Alexander was pompous beyond belief. He was going and campaigning. Hence his name. Yeah. He was going and campaigning in, in Persia. He wasn't that pompous. He would have been Alexander the. I'm good. I'm doing it. <laughs> if he had been born in Minnesota, it's like yeah, I don't want to make a big deal out of me. Alexander. <laughs> no. 
You can just call me Al. <laughs> <laughs> but he, at one point, he uh, he had this long-standing uh, difficulty with the Athenian Senate, mm-hmm. uh, and one senator in particular, name I don't remember off the top of my head, but who would always try to block everything that Alexander was doing on the because he was a fucking tyrant and yeah, he was yeah. going over there and you know <laughs> spending all their money killing people over in the east when they could have been doing something else with that but at one point alexander sends back a uh, uh a decree declaring himself to have to be the son of zeus i am the son <laughs> of zeus says alexander and surprisingly the senator is like oh okay well that's fine he can be the son of- <laughs> He could be the son of Neptune as well, as far as I'm concerned. Because for him, it made no fucking difference. Right. It's not like you're spending our treasury on this. That's right. So I love those skeptics from the the ancient world. Thucydides Thucydides is a great example. So Alexander can write whatever executive order he wants, as long as the Senate doesn't have to pay for it. Yeah. There's no actual effect. That's fine. Sign right here, President Trump. That would be, I would love... It wouldn't surprise me if Trump suddenly just says, I am now the sun god. <laughs> I, I signed this executive I, order. I will say it would surprise me. It <laughs> <laughs> will surprise you for five minutes until the next horrible thing came along. <laughs> It'll, it, it, would surprise, it would surprise me, and then it would once again surprise me that it wouldn't change a single <laughs> of level of support among his supporters. They would soon be like, yeah, some guy. I knew that. <laughs> his favorables went up. <laughs> I like the sun. Who doesn't like the sun? Do you hate the sun? <laughs> <laughs> so how, uh, how, how has your storytelling changed since the election? Because I... I <laughs> Because Ben has to bring it back to politics, I think. Politics. <laughs> we, we already brought it back to politics. Now I'm just... We, you, you brought it back to politics. No, I, I didn't want to talk about politics. Cat <laughs> said Trump first. I did. Well, this is, of course, my first, the first thing that I wrote after the election. There was a period where I wasn't doing any spoken word stuff. It, like a lot of people, I think I was shocked and dismayed and didn't quite know how to... Uh, how to react to it, and so this was my first impulse here. I still don't know how to react to it because, um, well, there's know. a new thing to react to every day. You, you, you haven't practiced. <laughs> yeah. You think you think well, I practiced for the most ridiculous thing that's going to happen in this administration, <laughs> and then then something else happens. You're like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. So shit, I got to figure out how I respond to this now. Well, and the first question too is, what good does any of it do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember Kurt Vonnegut saying that the 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 effect of every single American writer writing against the Vietnam War was equivalent to the force of like a cream pie drop from 10 feet. <laughs> I mean, really, that's what it is, right? You're, you don't do art to affect social change, at least not usually, not if it's going to be good art. You do it because you do it. You do it because you have to do it, right? And you have to say something. And this was my kind of, what do you even say? How do you, how do you even do anything? Anymore? Well, it's like that. I mean, it's a good point. Like with uh, Bob Dylan, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know if Bob Dylan was setting out to do anything. He was just... He, was he just clearly being, wasn't setting out to sing. <laughs> but he was just being Bob Dylan. Yeah, he was not, I think, and I'm sure Dylan of Files could correct me on this because I don't know a lot about um, his early history, but as I understand it, he was kind of resistant to having his music um, used as part of the 60s counterculture because he was just kind of doing his own thing. He wasn't a Phil Oaks who was writing specific protest songs about specific things or, or Pete Seeger or Woody Guthrie before him. Uh, and that's, and Dylan's stuff is, it's obscure and blown in the wind and 
you know, times are changing are not thing you, you can apply them to very different circumstances depending on what your uh, what your goals are. They're ineluctably tied with that sixties counterculture now because of just the history of how it all happened. Uh, but you know, but it's still why his stuff is listenable and. I think fucking I can't even hear Phil Oaks. I you listen to it and it's like, oh, this is the worst. You just never want to <laughs> listen to that again. I wasn't alive in 1967 <laughs> to give a shit about it. All right, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, I that was, is that I was is alive in 1967. <laughs> I just want to point that out, but not for much of it. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, Pat Harrigan, the voice of the counterculture. That uh, <laughs> and we will be right back. Heard it here. Phil Oaks sucks. <laughs> You are listening to the Not-So-Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. If you're in the Twin Cities metro area and would like to hear some live storytelling, or even sign up to perform yourself, we present a recurring monthly open mic at Kieran's Irish Pub in downtown Minneapolis. More information about this and many other spoken word events in the area are available at wordsprout.org. And now, back to the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back <laughs> to the Not So Silent Planet, a podcast. podcast. Yeah, see, see what the, it's like we're completing each other's semiotics. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I wish I was dead and that everyone else around this table was dead. I'm sure. <laughs> Give me <I>, <laughs> I've got. I I wrote a story. Philip, <laughs> host of the year. So, <laughs> I wish everybody here wasn't dead. <laughs> so, uh, also, hey, convergence is coming up. <laughs> hey, oh, that'd anyone, be great. Anyone, anyone doing anything? Has is a part it, of that Philip, they want to mention? Is, is it coming up? Is it? You, in theory, <laughs> this episode is going to be going up with plenty of time. Well, for those of you who attended is... Convergence, I hope you enjoyed it, Win. <laughs> hey, Ben, I think you're doing a show at Convergence what? in the future. I <laughs> am doing a, a show at the Harmcon Room, um, which is at the different... What's it's at the Sheraton. It's at the Sheraton, which okay. is across the street from the main yeah. hotel. So it's no longer like you don't. Have, you no longer have to drive. It's, like it's drive. no longer take like a shuttle. Yeah, yeah. it's no longer in the fuck you hotel. It's, <laughs> is this the first year? It's not. Uh, well, no. I mean, it was in the main hotel for many years, and then then. Oh yeah, that's right. And for then, a lot of reasons that were actually really they were logical, but still problematic. Mm. It had to move to the Crown. Mm. Um, but they finally <laughs> have been able to get it back to the. So for anybody listening who doesn't know, the Harmcon room is where. Uh, at the Converge also known as Harmonic Convergence. See how yeah. clever that is? <laughs> it's a pun. I'm bringing it up because I came up with the name many years ago. Admire my cleverness. <laughs> so, hey, Ben, what's the name of your show? I don't know yet. Harmonic Convergence. They didn't ask, they didn't ask for a name for this. <laughs> I Could actually... it be Ben Sandell, a spectacular. It is, it is cumulative. The show I <laughs> it is spec. S P E C is the name of the show that I'm doing. Thank you for story. clarifying it's, that because it was on. almost a slur. <laughs> like, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to come up with the title that represented the uh, the stories that I was doing, which were horror, sci-fi, and fantasy. And so it couldn't be a sci-fi story. It couldn't be sci 
A lot, I find that a lot of people don't know what speculative fiction is. When I say, like, oh, I do speculative oh, yeah. fiction, they're like, what's that? Go read your Harlan Ellis. A lot of convergence attendees are not going to have that problem. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would argue most. I'm not worried about convergence. I'm worried about, I'm doing a, the Victoria Fringe Festival in Canada, which is going to be much more of an issue. But no, I'll yeah. not having a title will be more of an issue. Yeah, no, the, <laughs> yeah, try, the trying country. to sell it as a speculative fiction. Right, show. right, right. Yeah, uh, it's going to be. A, I think it'll be a pretty a hard sell. But um, that's what I'm going to be doing at uh, uh, Convergence. I'm going to do an hour of uh, storytelling that I mm. have cultivated at the Not So Silent Planet open mic. Woo! Right. What about you, Tim? Pat, you got any plans for Convergence this year? Or? I have some stuff. I'm uh, um, going to be writing, uh, producing, and performing in uh, Big Fun Radio Fun Time, which will take place before awesome. opening ceremonies. Which is a it's a radio show, original radio plays, uh, several of which, at least two of which, are based on uh, some stories that I've been writing. One of which I presented at a Not So Silent Planet awesome <laughs> uh, show so there's that um i'm gonna be i don't know everything i'm gonna be doing i'll be at harmonic yeah. convergence as well with my band the dregs um, awesome none of what we'll be doing i think has been presented <laughs> at a not so silent panel. and none of us know panels right they haven't gotten back to the i i'm thinking i'm on some panels yeah um, i may be on panels i don't know <laughs> no, they haven't got back. But you know for you know that there's gonna at least you don't know when the panel is but you know at least there's gonna be or is this a secret? Should I not say this? I don't know. What? The not-so-silent planet panel? There is no wow. such panel that I know of. Not-so-silent planet podcast panel? Oh, yeah, the podcast. Yeah, we'll be doing a live <laughs> recording of oh. this podcast <laughs> at Convergence. It's so, a secret. So, uh, so, you so if, feel like I was doing crazy So if, So if you like... You know, sitting in your car and listening to drunk people try to be coherent about sci-fi, you could sit in a room with them and watch that happen live. Boy, that's exciting. <laughs> I'm going to be on a couple of podcasts. <laughs> I'll be on Joseph Scrimshaw's Obsessed podcast. Awesome. It's going to be about whiskey. Uh-huh. So, so because you're obsessed with I'm, whiskey? Well, <laughs> he, he likes to bring on people who who are not necessarily experts on a particular topic from time to time, and I am unquestionably not an expert on whiskey. So uh, there's that. We can get you up to speed. We'll we'll work on that. Also, I'm going to be doing a live Geeks Without God podcast, which uh, we've been doing every year since we started. Our first podcast we recorded it. At Convergence. So and uh, Joseph will be our guest, as a matter of fact. I also have a podcast that Joseph Scrimshaw will be a guest on. Woo! <laughs> we are uh, recording Joshua, Joshua Scrimshaw, Kelvin Hatley, and I have a Doctor Who podcast called Get Off My World. We'll be doing a live recording of that at Convergence with special guests Joseph Scrimshaw and Ariel Leaf. And we will also awesome. have Joshua Scrimshaw. What? On the podcast panel. What? He will, because he'll be doing some of his uh, recurring series as part of this podcast. Which you Bucky just heard Starburst. a few minutes ago. You did. News. Which is known as Bucky Starburst Junior Space Cadet. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's known as. Yeah. That's what it's, no, I've, heard it, I've heard it. It's, it's clever and, and interesting. <laughs> do we, uh, did, did any of us know what the actual dates of Convergence is this year? I oh, yeah. They're online. Uh, all three of us immediately just went to screens. So and that's the, <laughs> that the Double Tree Hotel in Bloomington? Or is it July 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th. Yeah, there we go. Tim was correct. 
I agree with Tim's assessment. And you have to get you have to get tickets ahead of time. Well, are. no, you can buy tickets at the door, but they're expensive. They but are. the the price has already gone up. I think. Uh, yeah, but it goes up much more at the door. Yeah, like another like. And I'm going to say like this, this, this this is the argument that I will make, which is it's a four day convention. The price at the door is not obscene. It's just a lot higher than it is now. Right. It's, it's <laughs> worth it. There is there is more than enough to do at that four day convention to make that. I think it's 120 dollars at the door. Mm-hmm. Well That's worth your money. And but then the, it's 75 bucks now. Yeah. The the so, thing I love about Convergence is uh, there's enough going on that you can really, you can totally build your own experience out of it. If you want to just go and listen to panels of people discussing things, you can do that. If you want to go see comedy shows all weekend, you can do that. If you want to get drunk and be in party rooms all weekend, you can do that. If you want to play board games, uh, like you can just if build like to do whatever. All of those things <laughs> simultaneously. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's possible for two people to go to Convergence and have completely different and unrelated experiences. And still end up gone. sleeping together. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, <laughs> I don't know why I brought that up. But. I don't know why you brought it up either. Just yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, why did you bring that up? I don't know, because that has not been my con experience. <laughs> well, let's move. It, it hasn't been mine either. Let's, so has it been anybody's? I, I have not like, had sex at Convergence. This has of gotten old. weirdly personal. I, you <laughs> none of us. I've been with my current wife for the entire time. <laughs> so As have I. So. I have also been with Pat's current wife for the entire time. <laughs> I didn't realize that was your Convergence experience. I'm going to give Carrie a call right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. But no, apparently that's like a Convergence experience, but I, I have not seen that bear out myself. So I guess... You have not. No. Hmm. You've no. Not, you've not no. borne that. It's out. too bad. You're 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 kind of a young, young a, attractive fellow. You're kind of an attractive fellow. I, I have always put a cape on. And let, let me let me be clear. I have never. I have always been in a position where I did not want to sleep around. I was in a relationship or whatever. But I always definitely had the sense that that was possible. If that was something you wanted to do at con, it wasn't. It was far from well, an insurmountable having, mountain to climb. To and, and I, I do not mean this. In, I, I, this will come off worse than it than it should. But having worked at worked at the Renaissance Festival for many years, having worked at having having formed Convergence, I mean, those are two places where what I found is, if that you want that to be a part of your experience at one of those places, <laughs> as long as you don't have standards. <laughs> It can happen. <laughs> Unquestionably so. Well, well I am just looking for women who don't have standards. Well, that's so. my, and, and that, that is my point. That is my point. You will find people who do not man, have standards. Man with standards looking for women with no standards. <laughs> there's, there's your America. <laughs> All right. And on that note, let's dive into our laws of semiotics. Ben, will you do the honors? All right, I guess I'm going first this time. Oh, shit. What does it say? Oh, man, this is a big piece of paper for a tiny amount of words. Author. (laughs) That's what she said. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. It's a race to the bottom on the Nutso Asylum Planet podcast. You get what you pay for, folks. This whole podcast is a race to the bottom. (laughs) Authors must be willing to kill... They're darlings. Oh. Yeah, there's that quote again. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I'm, I'm a tiny bit disappointed. 
It's a trope, which... Yeah, we no one can agree, agree who so. said it. I heard W.H. on... No, Ian Forster, I'm sorry, Ian Forster, but I don't think it's actually him. So let's talk about what that actually <coughs> means. Like, yeah, okay, a lot of people that. will say that, mm-hmm. and, but then people don't really know what what exactly... What's, what does that mean specifically with your story? Does it mean... Like, if, well, you're, if you're writing a script and there's a joke I really love mm-hmm. and I think it's hilarious, but the audience never laughs at it. I oh, I leave it. those in. <laughs> I know. Every time. There's always a joke in one of my scripts that's there because it's my favorite. And you, I don't care if anybody I, I will that. also give myself an indulgence. In, in a, I, I will pick one just because I like it. There was, there was a that. line in my friend show last year that I told people. It's like, my favorite line will never get a laugh. And I was sitting next to our friend, Reverend Matt Kessler, <laughs> during the show. And I had commented on He's like, which line is it? I'll say, I'll tell you when we get there. <laughs> and we got there and the audience didn't laugh. And I leaned over and I said, that was it. <laughs> and and then Matt laughed. the line? <laughs> yes. I will tell the line. It was uh, in a show called, and to think that I saw it on 221B Baker Street, which was a uh, mashup of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Seuss. And uh, at one point, they are in a, uh, a restaurant called The Roast Beast, and Watson complains that he cannot hang his hat because all of the hat posts are reserved for Bartholomew Cubbins. <laughs> I, I think it's funny, but it's it's reliant on them catching the reference. It is, yeah, it, it is, a, it is, and it didn't matter. I just I put that in there, and I'm like, if five people get it, I don't care. I don't think that that's, that's an excellent it, it, one, though. Yeah, in my opinion, that's not that's not what I think of like when I when I think of Killing Your Darling. No, okay. you're keeping something in. You're keeping something that's true to you as a writer. I think a, a, a an example of killing an, uh, your darling, like. One of the things that's so hard about doing it is if it does get a laugh. Mm-hmm. If you have a line oh, in a play yeah. that is a really successful joke, yeah. uh-huh. but it totally the tone of it is off for yeah. your, for your work, or it throws off the momentum, or it just is not. It doesn't make care. sense with a character, yeah. or the. Well, it doesn't yeah. have to be a joke either necessarily. Just like a passage of fine lyrical writing. Yeah. You're yeah. Like, wow, this I can't believe I wrote this. This is wonderful. But yeah. if it's if if it's not tonally appropriate for the rest of the thing, yeah. or if it or if it stops the narrative dead. Yeah. Then yeah, you might be better off getting rid of it. Or sometimes it can be, and I'm not saying this as a joke. Sometimes you can do something like, and this usually doesn't mm. happen with jokes, where it is too good. Mm-hmm. Like the joke is too funny. I've never had that problem. <laughs> and if you're doing, um, if you're doing something like, I haven't been in this situation, but I've heard that this is something that happens with sitcoms. Uh, you can't throw off. The rhythm of the dialogue that much by having the audience basically just just die just sure. die yeah. just it basically becomes about that joke and then you lose the the mm-hmm. totality of the scene and i think that to me that's what i think of like what when somebody says kill your darlings just kill something that you see yeah. can see is really people really like and you really like but this is why editors are so important <laughs> because editors will kill your darlings for you mm-hmm. they'll be like this part doesn't work and you'll be like shit they're right <laughs> see, see this is yeah. something i think of with uh when people talk about cheap jokes and i'm like cheap jokes are great that's a joke you get that costs you nothing it's a free li- like why wouldn't it but i think what people really mean when they say cheap jokes they're talking about expensive jokes it's a joke that gets a laugh but costs you something important 
it lowers the tone of everything yeah, yeah, too much. Yeah. <laughs> it pulls the audience out of out of the the, the narrative or out of, yeah. out of the scene. They're like really into it, and then an actor's like, eh? <laughs> eh? and then 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 which will probably gotta, get a laugh if the actor sure. does that. But then you got <laughs> then you got to work to bring him back in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an interesting thing too because a cheap joke. A lot of times people will talk about a cheap joke as being like, uh, "That's what she said." Kind of just an easy, lazy thing. But, uh, but this, there's a, again, there's this, there's a difference between a cheap joke and a lowbrow joke, and they're not the same. That's not yeah. the same thing. You can have a lowbrow joke that is not a cheap joke. Um, but I think it's those those two things are. are uh, Put in the same category. Mm-hmm. I mean, a cheap joke a could be something that the audience is anticipating half second before you say it. Like, sure. oh, he's going to say, oh, that's what she said. But if it's something <laughs> surprising and lowbrow, then I wouldn't call that a cheap joke. Yeah. <clears throat> it's like, it's just another, it's basically just being hack. It's mm-hmm. just hackiness. Yeah. That but, is definitely me. I, Speaking I, of Tim, <laughs> next law <laughs> of right. semi- Our representative <laughs> hack. <laughs> All right. Oh, God, this one has a lot of words on it. <laughs> Expand on what you have already before you add something new. A brilliant magic system for a book is less often one with a thousand different powers and abilities and is more often a magic system with relatively few powers that the author has considered in depth. So I'm going to say that the book you recommended actually contains some really great examples of this. Kim Newman's Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the protagonist is someone who initially she can float... And then eventually she can fly and realize that this is a form of telekinesis. She can move things and move herself. And do. But uh, a lot of the climax of the book is the various characters with powers, each of which seemingly have a single application and finding clever and inventive ways to use it. Yeah, yeah well, I certainly admire books like some of the best of... Uh, Stephen King's mm-hmm. novels where he takes one anomalous strange thing or a handful of them uh, mm-hmm. and then explores in detail what it would mean for that to actually operate in the world. Right. Work it out in depth instead of, um, I think what the writer of this uh, squib is implying is you don't just want to proliferate supernatural nonsense mm-hmm. here, there, and everywhere because then you undermine the, cre- uh, the credibility of uh, well, if anybody can do anything, and you know, yeah. now I can fly, and now I can have heat vision, and now yeah. I can go into outer space. <laughs> well, it's it's Silver now Age. Now yeah. the super dog. And <laughs> it's it's Silver Age Superman who has suddenly has super ventriloquism, or can reverse time, or can just do whatever he needs to at any given super moment. Super ventriloquism. So, yeah, that was a that's thing. a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> The Silver Age was nuts. Even, <laughs> I, even I knew that. Well, I, apparently in the least well, let's be clear. The Silver Age was fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but generally speaking, I think, yeah, avoid that. Well, the Silver Age was awesome in the sense of, like, listening to your six-year-old nephew say, and then he flew into space, and then he built a space ladder, mm-hmm. and then he blew up the moon. And, the, like, it's awesome not because it makes any sense. It's yeah. <laughs> and sometimes that's literally true. The, when Jim Shooter <laughs> took over the Legion of Superheroes in uh, the Silver Age, nobody at DC had ever met him in person. He was right. just corresponding with them. That's because he was a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> He'd been reading it, reading out of Bender's stuff or whatever. It's like, I can do this. And that's why some of it was so bananas. <laughs> that's why Jim Shooter's still alive. <laughs> so that's um, uh, so that's one way to, uh, to look at this is that the idea of just yeah just too much just too much dilutes and mm-hmm. you can't really have us I think another way that I go 
to me it goes back to in my head uh, to comedy again, which is um, having a setup that's really clever. And it, it will, you see this with comedians and, and, and myself all the time where you write something and this is a funny idea and then I see this same thing happening in, um, in speculative fiction. We're like, oh, this is an amazing, amazingly cool fantasy or sci-fi idea. And then you go, okay, that idea is so cool. That's all I need in this story. I just, I, but what you've, <laughs> it's every Saturday Night Live sketch, right? It's like, <laughs> I have one premise and we're just going to pound that premise into the ground. Every well, episode for an entire season. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's forgetting to have a punchline. Yeah. It's it's you set up something you set. I mean, very literally with the with the joke, um, people will have a setup and then just go. Well, I thought the setup was funny. I thought the very idea of this yeah. joke was funny, but you didn't give an example. You didn't go anywhere. You didn't give a punchline. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. see that, in, and I'll see that in my like any any story I, I read mm-hmm. that I feel doesn't really work. I was like, oh, I had good ideas, but I didn't. That, that was all a setup. It was just a setup for like, where's the story then? Where Where's the examples yeah. that this idea is going to be used in real life that people can mm. relate to? There's no punchlines in this, right? And so, yeah. So, the way I read this uh, this rule is: stop, take your idea, and see what you can do with it. Explore this idea and see where you can take it. Instead mm. of just going, look at this clever idea, and now I'm moving on. Yeah, I think it's also a good point that uh, when when a magic system or any system like that becomes too complex, the reader can't follow it. They can't, they can't, they, there's too many things going on. They, they don't really know how your internal system works, so they have no way to really grasp onto it and get mm-hmm. intrigued by, by the system and by the weaknesses and the strengths of it. Yeah. So, you know, understanding at what point your magical, your phenomenal magical powers are not going to be useful to solve the problem that you've been faced with. Mm-hmm. Which is what makes books with supernatural pieces a lot more interesting is when you've got these characters that have this capacity that is supernatural and better than everybody else, and yet it isn't good enough to overcome the problem. Mm-hmm. I remember some Isaac Asimov <coughs> article many years ago where he was talking about that in a science fictional context, where because you know a writer, if you're t- writing science fiction, you can make up whatever rules you want, uh, but the problem is is that you have the temptation of making up whatever rules that are going to be ultimately necessary for the resolution of your story. Like mm-hmm. I, I think he was specifically talking about a detective story context. Well, okay, write a detective story. Someone gets murdered on a spaceship. It's not much of a story if you've got telepathic aliens around who can read everybody's minds. So mm-hmm. um, establish the rules of the universe quickly for the benefit of the reader and acknowledge the limitations of it, and then you are able to tell a story. But if you just mm-hmm. introduce somebody you can read your mind at the last minute, then it's not much of a thing. Well, and that's a, I mean, that's a problem the DC universe continually runs into because they're fond of these just huge over-the-top sort of power fantasies with these characters and uh, trying to create a legitimate threat that is going to be able to be responded to meaningfully by Superman, telepathic shape-shifting alien Martian Manhunter, Batman, who's just a really smart guy, and like, and still like construct an interesting puzzle slash narrative. Yeah. It's it's almost impossible. I can't do, I can't I can't read them anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's 
they're going to reset the universe every five minutes anyway. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm middle-aged. I need a story with a beginning, middle, and an end now. I can't have that permanent. That's, that's the permanent of middle age. <laughs> All right, Pat, bring us out. <laughs> oh yeah another long one that's 25 pages <laughs> an author must not ignore their own intersections of privilege and oppression before attempting to speak for someone of a different background than themselves and they must seek guidance to avoid appropriating or misrepresenting another's culture another's culture or voice well, that really goes to the heart of it doesn't it <laughs> um, well that's a big problem and a big um, uh, discussion that's happening all over the world right now yeah. it's um well, in its, in its, there, there's kind of a uh, a simple and a complex form of interpreting that. One is that you should try to empathize as much as possible and get the experience of someone who doesn't share your personal background correct before you write something. Right. And then the uh, maybe not complex, but the hardline approach would be that it is impossible then for you to write something of someone else's experience. So me as a white man, for example, I, uh, if I'm trying you to write You are only a allowed to write about white men from this point forward. Right. If I, if I were to think about writing a black woman character in a novel, mm. let's say, uh, I would think that that would be a challenge for me, particularly if she was from a completely different background than myself or you know from a different country or whatever. I'd hope that as an author I would do enough due diligence to try to make that a... Uh, not a lampoon or a parody of somebody in that situation. I, re I resist the, the more hardcore idea, which is that you just shouldn't attempt it in the first place. Mm. Because otherwise, I mean, taken to its logical extreme, then that's the death of all fiction. It just right. means you can't write anything outside your own experience, and then we're which all in these little kind of some, yeah. What most of the storytelling uh, uh, is these days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, storytelling. This, this goes... Right to the heart of the origin of this entire series, <laughs> to my point of view, which is the explosion of personal narrative in the storytelling spoken word scene. And which, only personal narrative. Which, again, I love personal narrative. I built my career on it, you know, <laughs> the, but uh, I grew increasingly frustrated with how narrow that was in and looking around the Twin Cities, various open mic, storytelling events, spoken word events, there was just no place to do any sort of experimental. The only thing you could do if you wanted to be a storyteller, it seemed, was to walk in front of a microphone <clears throat> and tell tragic stories about your childhood. And, <laughs> and also pretend that you're not a storyteller. This oh, is yeah. something that's coming off the top of your head. <laughs> is, that, is that a thing? That's what the moth does. Oh, I don't know the moth. Fuck the moth. <laughs> <laughs> the moth is a little bit... Um, and I'm not dialing back that one, <laughs> by the way. The moth is a tiny bit staged in the fact that they don't... Tiny do bit staged. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a farce. For, for the people who perform are, are very well-thought storytellers, but there's, they are to give the impression that they just came in and they're just telling this story off the top of their head. and They're not supposed to talk about things where... Like well, that, would, that would clue the audience into the fact that they are professional storytellers and performers, um, and uh, it's, so it's a yeah, it's a little bit manufactured. Well, I mean, there's there's room for artifice in art, I guess. Yeah, um, 
But sure, there's but a difference between a artifice and like... actively lying to your audience <laughs> about what you are doing. It's just gotten to the point, like, and I'll give this example. I, I, there was a, a, a show where the a storytelling show I got invited to do, and I was like, can I do, because I don't want to, I, I did the whole personal experience thing, and I got tired of talking about myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's good. And uh, <laughs> and I asked, can, can, is it, can I do a fiction story? And they just flat out said, no. No. And it wasn't. It wasn't uh, like a. I don't think the the show was even billing itself as a nonfiction story. Right. It was just like, no, we don't, we don't do fiction storytelling, and that it's, so it's got to the point where fiction. Oh, is but they like, do. I out. promise you, they do. <laughs> well, that's the other thing with nonfiction storytelling is you know that there's these amazing exaggerations oh to God. make the stories oh, work. Of course. So it is fiction being sold, being packaged and sold to you as nonfiction, and we all just sort of. Take take that and go. Okay, yeah, nonfiction, sure. <laughs> yeah, I think the problem with I, I mean, the, the the as this is stated, it's fair. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to think about those things. Um, it's it's one of the reasons that uh, you know, as I've written, um, one of the places I haven't gone is is I haven't written any transgender characters, and I mm-hmm. I, I actually feel bad about that. But I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't understand this experience well enough to write somebody else who's having it. Mm. Um, and so, so it, it really is a, and, and there's another piece that I'm writing that, that I've been really worried about cultural appropriation because I'm writing about some Native American characters mm. and, and some Native American stories. And it's like, am I appropriating their culture by writing right. about it? I mean, in that, uh. those cases, I honestly think that it's, it's okay to do that, but I would bring in. I would, you know, like the transgender, I would ask somebody yeah. who's transgender yeah. to read this. and, mm-hmm. and To be the representative of yeah, every transgender person and, that's, that's and to, to speak do. on behalf of every transgender person on earth. You're cooning it a little bit, but that's exactly the problem, right? <laughs> right, that's, exactly. That's, right? As constituted, this thing is, I don't disagree with this at all, and I don't, I don't <laughs> well. want to be a curmudgeon about it because there has been a history of, of white men, for the most part, writing every story under the sun. And so, if so, for a white man to write, uh, say, a Native American person's story is you do need to be careful, yep. and it's not just a matter of well, I'm going to run it by my Native friend and, yeah. and get her check mark on it, uh, <laughs> but that might be a first step, just to. Well, you have to think about it even before you write. You run it by that Native American friend. You have to. You have to really think about it. Think about how am I writing this? Am mm-hmm. I? Am I being true to what I understand? And then running it by a Native American friend and saying, am I being true to what you understand? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and <clears throat> you can never get it 100% right. But I think the way you get it 100% wrong is if you don't take it in consideration. Right. If you don't think about it, if you don't spend a little time trying to figure out, as a white male, if I'm going to write a character who's a black female, I don't really understand that at all. So I need to take a little bit of time to think about how I am different from this character and how this character's experiences differ from mine and how I can make that sound natural and realistic and respectful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's easy <clears throat> to fall into the trap of, of seeming like you are being respectful and and you think you are but it's really coming off as condescending. And yeah, and there's mm-hmm. such a thing as being too 
respectful of being too like self-consciously well that's the mary sue kid glove like of the yeah it's it's uh it's like i'm gonna put uh, i'm gonna make the, to walk. the woman <laughs> the main character and she's gonna be just awesome in everything mm. she does as, <laughs> i mean that you're t- that you'll see male writers do that too where they're just like okay i'm so okay with having you taking men out of the picture in terms mm. of like the main characters that i'm just going to celebrate the idea that that's not happening and then that's then you're drawing att- then you're patting yourself on the back essentially mm. and you're drawing attention to well and the the flip side of that is that you have a generation of male writers who feel like they can't create flawed female characters because they're engaging in some kind of misogyny if they do so, which I think is also destructive. If the the notion that you can only create these sort of superheroic, mm-hmm. that you have this obligation to create strong female characters as role models for every young female who might read or see what you're doing, as a <laughs> and if it, I, 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 for me, I like I about half of my stories uh, are come from the perspective of a female voice, and I like writing women characters. And uh, my last play had the main characters were women, and I and I like doing that because uh, I I I it does teach me some things because I go oh I'm writing something differently right now because. She, this character is female, but I wouldn't have done that if this was a male character. And then mm. I go back and go, okay, so what am I? What what is my assumption here? That I'm sort of, I mean, I some, sometimes I'll go mm. into a story with the main character being male and be like, why does this character have to be male? Well, I think on some level you just really like getting inside a female, don't you? Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> I my general rule, it's just it's one of those. Those things that I think about is if I'm writing a story with a character and it doesn't matter which gender they are, I make it a woman. Mm. Because our yeah. tendency, our tendency is to make characters men. It's like the default. For some it is, and that is the that is the tendency. I mean, they've they've looked at it. It's the tendency of men and women as writers. Our tendency is to make a character a man. So I just try to work against that tendency and go. Does it matter if this character is a man? If it doesn't then I tend to make it a woman. I, I appreciate that impulse, but at the same time, the thought that flies to the forefront of my mind is it's very hard for me to think of the notion that gender doesn't matter. To I mean, uh, uh, because mm. what matters to character is identity and gender is part of identity. Sure. I mean, the... Once you make that character a woman, that that is part of their identity and that's right. part of the way that yeah. you need to write for it. But yeah. at, the, at the same time, when you're first formulating an idea and you go, all right, here's my main character. Does this main character need to be a man? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, then I will make it a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. This is such a complicated, interesting discussion. <laughs> it, it and thank like God there's no women around this table to <laughs> well, take I mean, part that's in what I was going to say. It's like, <laughs> I know that happens a lot in this podcast. Like, I wish we had uh, somebody representing. But it's almost as if you should take this uh, uh, This. Uh, slip and put it back yeah. in the hat with no other slips and invite a lot of uh, more diverse people than the four white <laughs> the, the three and, and a half and white guys <laughs> we are so white even Philip who isn't is so <laughs> and, and I don't mean to be Philip, flipped because Philip, I think it really you're as white as Barack Obama <laughs> 
I don't mean to be flippy because I think it is a, a really serious, interesting discussion to have. Mm. But uh, we could probably do it all night. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and, uh, that's my experience that, the last time I was here. And <laughs> on that note, that seems as good a play. Now that the four of us have collectively solved the problem of presenting gender in fiction, I don't think we can possibly top that. That's <laughs> I don't know what it is about these recordings, Phil. Like the last time we were here too, I was like <laughs> complaining about Afrofuturism. <laughs> I never do this. I'm like, what the? Why am I going off about like, Afrofuturism? Oh, because this is what's great about speculative fiction. It makes you talk about this stuff. <laughs> and this is also what's dangerous about speculative fiction because uh, it can really piss people off when you talk about this stuff. I've never experienced that, <laughs> ladies well, and gentlemen. You have been. Listening to the Not So Silent Planet, a speculative podcast. Tune back in in two weeks when we have Tim Wick as our guest. Oh, he sounds awesome. I can't wait. Woo! Each story holds a thousand seeds, a proverbial pomegranate, a jewel of A not-so-silent planet A not-so-silent planet A not-so-silent planet